0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon.
1: Well, good morning, church. Glad you're with us here today. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be using that as our our text. Mark chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 22 here in just a few moments. If you're new to Christ Church visiting us today, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the church. and This gentleman to my uh, left is Michael DeFazio, who has served and continues to be one of our teaching pastors here uh, on our team and also is a full-time professor at Ozark Christian College. And uh, when we were setting up this series and talking about the spring assignments and who wanted what text and how we would handle it, Michael came up with a great idea to have a dialogue on this particular text. And uh, we'll explain why we're going to do that in just a moment. But I want to tell you that the text that we're going to cover today in Mark chapter eight is a text that in the last month, four different people have made an inquiry with me about what is going on in this text. And I think you'll see why we'll even maybe call it a partial miracle And uh, see what uh, all that significance takes place. But let's go ahead and have a reading of the text today. There are three pieces to it. Uh, As you'll see, it seems like three different stories. But we're going to show you that actually when we read them together, it gives us more ability to understand what Mark is doing. So we'll begin. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. This is a pretty intense section of scripture. And it'd be really easy to look at it as three different scenes in Jesus' life, but I think there's something more significant. Michael, because you have the opportunity to teach Mark in the academic setting, as well as being a pastor and understanding how church people need to see this and live within it, what is Mark doing in these eight chapters, which commences today? What is he doing here, and how should we take that into consideration when we interpret this part?
0: Yeah, one of the reasons why I love the Gospel of Mark so much, and you know, we have four of these Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all tell the same story of Jesus saving the world, but they tell it in different ways. One of my favorite things about Mark is it really does have a, a simple structure to it. And whenever I'm reading a book, I like to know where I am in the book. And with Mark, you can have that fairly easily because it's divided in halves. There are 16 chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and 1 through 8 are one theme, and then 9 through 16 are really building on that and driving it home further. So chapters 1 through 8, I think, really are designed to, in various ways, communicate one point, and that is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, same word. He's the one we're looking for, He's the Savior of the world, He's the sum of our hopes and dreams. And so everything that happens in chapters 1 through 8 is designed to reinforce that point. Maybe he'll get into a conversation with some other religious leaders and show that he understands God's will better than they do. Maybe he'll be in a situation where there's a healing or, or you know, the seas are going crazy and he calms the seas or heals the person or raises the dead person. And in all of these ways, it does, it's designed to show us this, this one truth, that he is everything. And even last week, you, you know, you were talking about some of the miracles like the feeding of the 4,000 and some of the things that Jesus is doing in Gentile territory right there leading up to this. This portion. So as he moves toward this crescendo, this middle point of the gospel, we see him doing in Gentile territory, same things he'd been doing in Jewish territory, which drives home this point that he is the Christ. He is the, the savior, the deliverer, not just for one, but for all people. And so the entirety of one through eight is focused on that. And then in the middle of the gospel, we have kind of a hinge and we turn our attention to now that we know that Jesus is the Christ, we're going to focus ourselves on the second half, which is the Christ is headed for a cross. This one who came to save the world is going to save the world by suffering and dying on our behalf. And I think if you back up and look at it as a whole, Mark's point is you can't have the Christ without the cross. You can't have Jesus without, without him dying and then you being a part of what's going on there. So in that sense, that's the, the wide view of the gospel. And I really think this, this section that we're looking at, the, the partial healing followed by the confession of Jesus' identity, and then the prediction of suffering with the rebuke and the call to discipleship. This whole collection of things is the hinge on which the gospel really turns. So there's
1: two passages in Mark that we, we talked one on the video sermon a few weeks ago. We talked about two moments, or we talked about one, and now we're going to talk about the second that I've always struggled with. Is like, did Jesus have bad days? I would always default to, yeah, that one time he called that woman a dog. Not his best moment. Then I understand within it, he was actually using a parable. And if you remember, whether playfully or not, the woman got into the parable and responded. Remember, he said, you don't feed dogs, you feed the children. And she said, yeah, but even the puppies get fed, right, one day? And could today be that day? And Jesus looked at her and said, such faith. Right? So there are moments where we can project, if you just pop any passage out of its storyline, like Michael said, where we are in the book, if you pop that out, you can make Jesus having a real bad day and having a really ugly answer. So then we get to this second moment that makes Jesus look like, wow, what happened? And this is the first piece where he heals a man, but he doesn't fully heal him, a partial healing. And he has to go back the second time. And we can ask ourselves the question, did Jesus lose his mojo? What happened here? Why, Why wasn't he healed initially? So there's two theological questions about this first part of today's text that I want to ask you deep theological questions that need answered. A, why couldn't Jesus heal them the first time? And B, what's wrong with the Cubs this summer? <laughs> I need to well, know the answer we'll, to both of them. We'll start those. with the
0: second one first, because it's a pretty easy pretty easy answer here. Like the the problem with the Cubs is like churches are doing a good job evangelizing people, and so more people are becoming Christians, therefore Cardinals fans, therefore the juice is getting <laughs> Lord. And today's
1: text is about partial sight, people. <laughs> partial sight.
0: So and on the first one, yeah, this is no question a weird text. So he's taking this blind guy out in the, outside the village, like spits on his eyes somehow. Can you see? Well, sort of. I see people. They look like trees. Touches him again. Now I see well. What in the world? And there really are two options. One of them is, like you're saying, Jesus is just struggling. It's a little bit of a power outage. Um, and uh, the other one, though, is that he's making a point. And I think we would all assume Jesus probably isn't having a power outage, so there's got to be something else going on. And even if you don't assume that, there are a lot of clues within the story that I think show us Jesus is making a point. And the key to understand this strange two-stage healing of blindness is to see that this guy's actual physical sight is a metaphor, in a way, for our spiritual sight, for our understanding of Jesus, so his ability to see parallels in the story Peter's understanding of Jesus. And Peter represents the disciples, which then we find ourselves in the story in that same way. Let me explain what I mean. So, you know, you have uh, in the follow-up conversation, uh, Jesus is like, who do people say that I am? And he gives all these answers. And then who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, you're, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Like, right answer, ding, ding, ding. So he can see that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus is, starts to explain that he's going to die, and Peter rebukes him. So clearly he doesn't quite understand. And in a similar way, this man can't see, and then Jesus touches him. He, he, he heals him. So can you see now? Well, sort of. I see people, so I know what I'm looking at, but they look like trees, so it's not quite clear. He is at a point in his, in his ability to see physically, which parallels where Peter is in the story, knowing Jesus but not knowing Jesus. And then, of course, what does Jesus do? He gives him a second touch so that he can see perfectly. And in the same way, now that we're transitioning into the second half of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is going to take his followers on a journey so that they can really start to grasp what it means that Jesus is the one who's going to save the world, both for him and also for those who are following him. Does that make sense? Yeah, and
1: I think what's what's in- powerful for me and Michael's teaching on this particular spot is that the only time I can find in all the gospels that Jesus performs a miracle and then he asks the person he performs it on, did it work? Notice what it says right there in verse 23. Uh, Do you see anything? He doesn't do that when he heals any other blind people. But in this particular one, he's like, do you see anything? He's making a point here. And the guy says, it looks like people, but they look like trees. And I'm not very smart, but I know people aren't trees. What he's revealing here is we have a partial understanding. And so he tells them, don't go into the village. Yeah. He does this also in verse 30, yeah. after he asked the disciples who they were. Why is he telling them not to, they just discovered this powerful reality. He's
0: saying, don't talk about it. Yeah, and you'll notice this. If you ever have time to just sit down or maybe over the course of a week or two read through Mark's gospel and really kind of soak yourself in the story, um, you'll notice that Jesus keeps his identity secret a lot. And he does it in some of the other gospels, too, because they're all reporting the same events. But Mark seems to draw more emphasis on this. That sometimes it's called the messianic secret. That's the technical term for it. He's keeping it a secret that he's the Messiah. And, and you don't wonder why, like, isn't the point Jesus to come here and, and like show yourself to the world? And I think Jesus would say, well, yeah, but only if they're ready to understand it. And what's interesting about Mark's gospel is you have a lot of this secrecy in the first half of the gospel where Jesus is showing them that he's the Messiah. And then as the story unfolds, as you get closer to the cross, there's less secrecy. And the point is like, you really only can understand who Jesus is when you see him on the cross. So you really only understand what it means to say that Jesus is my God. he's my savior, he's my Lord, he's the sum of my hopes and dreams, he's the one who's gonna put my life back together again. However you might articulate that, and there's a thousand ways to say it well, However you say that, it, it really only kind of makes sense as you understand that he does this by dying on the cross and then inviting us into that same path of suffering in some sense. And uh, it's kind of, I mean, we do this with, with our children, we do this with, with employees, with anybody that we're leading. Sometimes you, you know what you want to tell them, but they're not in a place where they can understand what you're going to say. Or if you're a teacher, you totally get this. You got all sorts of things you're not telling them because they're not yet ready to hear it. And in this gospel, really, we're being educated into discipleship as in, in, in the context of a relationship where Jesus is pulling us along. So that, and I, and you, you notice that transition here where, yeah, he tells them, don't go into the village. And then he tells the disciples, don't tell anyone about me. In the very next verse, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Once you understand that the Christ is headed for a cross, you really understand what it means to say that he's the Christ.
1: See, being able to take these three moments and combine them together gives us the lens by which we can discuss what they're saying. If you pop these out, like this middle piece we're about to talk about, when he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? If you pop that out of Mark chapter 8, and you don't understand what precedes it and what follows it, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. It's just a bad hermeneutic, which is a, the academic term for looking into the scripture and, and tell and receiving from it what it's saying in its context to its audience and so forth. So what's interesting to me here is that he says to them, who do you say that I am? He's just given this beautiful metaphor of partial sight. Then he comes around and he's asking them, you've, you know how people perceive me. Who do you say that I am? Okay, so Peter uses, you addressed it just a moment ago, he calls him to Christ. That's the, that's the Greek word for Messiah. Peter says, you've got it. And Jesus says to him, Now, don't talk about it. And he sets him up for the sermon, the third piece that you just mentioned. He says they're going to suffer. And Peter then, when he hears this, and I love verse 32, notice it in your scriptures. He spoke plainly to them. No metaphors, no parables, no tricky language. He told them right up front, we are now turning toward Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer greatly. And Peter rebukes him. Why did Peter feel he needed to do that?
0: Yeah, it's such a good question. And, you know, it's, it's, and it, as we talk about Peter, we, you know, we, I know our heart and I don't know your heart is, Well, so where am I in the story? And what I love about this is Peter's shining moment isn't as shiny as Peter thinks it is. So Jesus does that. He kind of, not in a harsh way, but in an appropriate way, kind of sets him up. You know, it's like, who do others say that I am? And Peter just knows he's given, well, they got the wrong answer and they got the wrong answer and they got the wrong answer. All of them do. And then, well, what about you? And Peter's like, well, I know the right answer. And I think that's probably most of us in this room feel like, hey, I, a lot of people don't know the truth about Jesus. I know the truth about Jesus. And there's this temptation to then think that means I've arrived. You know? And this whole point of this story, I think for us, each of us in the room, is don't think that you've arrived in your understanding with Jesus just because you have the, the answer in place. And so Peter is, you know, he is, to your question of why. Peter has a hard time with this. You know, maybe you've heard that, that the Jews at the time were expecting a certain kind of leader. They wanted the Messiah to come and defeat the Romans and free them from slavery and to lead this political march where we take over the world. And so in that sense, Peter has a hard time because he expects something from the Messiah and the actual Messiah doesn't fit it. And beyond that context, because we're not first century Jews who are looking for the Messiah to come deliver us from Rome. We're 21st century folks who are looking for somebody to come make sense of the world. We throw out words like happiness and joy and peace to describe the things that we want. And all of us, and I'd say this even if it was a mixed room of all sorts of beliefs and ways of life and ideologies, all people are looking for something And and they want something to help them find it. So maybe it's another person whose teachings I'm going to follow. Or maybe it's a certain amount of money at which point I'll be satisfied. Or maybe it's a goal like having a career or a family. Or maybe it's just I think it's actually within myself. So I'm going to look inside to find the answer. So we all are looking for or looking to something to help us figure life out and in the end be happy. And very few of us think that whatever that thing is is going to cause us call us to suffer. Like, that doesn't compute to us. So we have an understanding of how we need ourselves fixed. And it usually doesn't involve someone who dies a shameful death and then invites us to follow his example. So it's more than, I think, just Peter. It is me. It is you. It is all of us in the room recognizing that, yeah, Jesus is the one. He is the sum of my hopes and dreams. He is my everything. But I probably have a view in my mind of what that's supposed to be that's different from the reality. And it's probably going to, in certain ways, be harder than I anticipated to let this person actually put me and the world back together again.
1: Now, you shared with me an insight you have on Peter. You said he's thoughtful here. He's not ignorant. Yeah. Uh, when he says, you are the Christ, for many of us, we know that we have to confess Jesus. Part of, part of the expectation of belief in someone is saying, that's my guy. I, I believe in him, and I'm going to choose to believe in him. And for a lot of us, I'm afraid in American culture and that profession of Jesus is where our lives stopped instead of began. And so when he says, you are the Messiah, he got the answer right. He just doesn't understand how right his answer was. Does that make sense? He, he said the right thing, but the implications began to frighten him. So one of your insights you shared with me that I really appreciated was insightful to me as well and, and opened me up was when Jesus began to describe what was going to take place very plainly. Peter deducted something from that, which probably caused him to rebuke Jesus. What's your suggestion yeah, I, about that?
0: We, we so often, if you know Peter and you know, you know, you've you kind of read, noticed him in the scriptures, we often treat him like he's kind of a buffoon. You know, he's just this dummy who puts his foot in his mouth. And sometimes that's the case. But as often as not, I think Peter's just thinking things through. And in this case, that's exactly why he has an issue with it. Because he's like, hey, so you're the guy I've decided to follow. So whatever happens to you, I'm involved in. You said, what's going to happen to you? Peter connects the dots and realizes that a suffering Messiah means suffering discipleship. If he's going to go through this hard path to accomplish his mission, then that means something for me as well. And yeah, absolutely. I think Peter is putting those pieces together, filling out the equation, doing the math, connecting the dots, and realizing that, hold on a second, whatever happens to you, like my fate, my destiny, my future is wrapped up in that. And same thing with us. You know, whenever we realize that, that the, the fact that Jesus is close, most closely recognized when he's on the cross says something about when I'm most going to be in the middle of, of what God's doing in my life, absolutely, yeah. When you think about
1: traditional vows in a marriage, what do you hear? Are you gonna take all of it? Or are you vowing to take the best of it? If in a vow you simply said for rich, for healthy, for good, forever, everybody's in. But when you add poor and sick, And struggles and suffering and depression, people have to stop and think. The vows mean something. And so Peter has deducted well that Jesus said, if you follow me, let let me ponder it this way, just an expression that comes to to my mind. If Jesus said to you, I want to take you to heaven, who in this room would turn that down? But when Jesus says, for me to take you to heaven, I'm going to have to walk you through hell not because I hate you, not because I'm getting even with you, but I have to walk you through hell to get to heaven because you need to understand that the suffering is how I purify you. The suffering, the hardship of following me is what makes a disciple, not heaven. Would that change the way we followed? Peter has deduced this. And so Jesus calls him
0: Satan. What do we do with that? Yeah. Gosh, there's so much in there. Such a good question. Again, yeah. And I'm thinking about what you're saying and just amending it. And You know, in the life of following Jesus, I think we sometimes can, we can fall into this pattern of when things go wrong, when life is hard, when I start to suffer, something must be wrong with the system. And in this case, no, Jesus here is saying, no, that's like the system working. Um, and again, it's just like training up a child or, or, or training, teaching a student, or if you, you know, you're in a work context, you raise up an employee, you don't protect them from the hard things and all the situations that could do them in. You equip them for them, and then you send them out into the struggle so that they can learn and be able to grow and become capable of what it is they're designed to be capable of. And the Satan piece here is fascinating because this is one of my favorite teachings from you is when you talk about the temptations of Christ. So different texts. So pause on this one. Remember early in Jesus' life when he's tempted by Satan three times? Satan comes up with these various things to try to lure Jesus in. You talk about how all of these are shortcuts, about how Jesus came to feed people, and Jesus came to receive glory, and Jesus came to be worshiped by all the nations, all the things that Satan offers, but those things were on the other side of the cross, so when Satan shows up in Jesus' life, Satan is trying to pull uh, Jesus away from the path that God has laid out for him, and that, I think, is why he calls Peter Satan here. Like you said before, it's not that he's trying to be like super harsh. I mean, he's trying to get his attention, but he's saying, Peter, I've been there. I, I know what it's like to like be tempted to bypass the actual way to get where God wants us to go. That's Satan pulling you off course, man. So I'm just going to go ahead and put you in your place so that you can recognize you're being pulled away from what God wants, not toward it. And he, I think, shocks him into repentance in the end. So Jesus suffered
1: for what purpose? Because he had earned it? No. Because he had done something wrong and God was punishing him? No. No. Why did Jesus suffer? Well, we know the gospel tells us, the good news of Jesus tells us he suffered for you and me. He took on our sin. He took on the wrath that was due us for our rebellion. You see, sin isn't accidental. Get rid of all the times you did something wrong because you were ignorant. Dismiss those. We're not talking about those. We're talking about the time you looked God right in the face and said, "Uh uh-uh. The moment you said, I know better than you about everything. That's what sin is. It's defying God's goodness and his wisdom. And so in those moments, Jesus took that sin upon himself, having never done that to God. He took our doing that to God upon himself so that you and I might be free. Right? Everybody agree with that? I don't think anyone's going to go, blasphemy. No, that's just the gospel. Now let's talk about our suffering. You have to erase from your mind that suffering is God getting even with you and making you pay before he doesn't make you pay. Suffering is the fact that we're standing up for the goodness of God. We're standing up for the morality of God. We're standing up for the ethics of God because we believe he's good and he's right. And our world is not going to receive that. So we're going to suffer by following Jesus because we're going to follow Jesus when the world makes fun of him, when the world persecutes him. The suffering we're talking about is not a bad day. It's not migraines. It's not those things that happen to everybody. The suffering he's saying is, if you follow me, I'm going to have to take you to hell to get to heaven. And we have to ask ourselves a question if we're willing to do that. But also notice what he says there in verse 35. After the cross, he said, whoever wants to save his life, what? Loses it. And whoever wants to lose his life for me will save it. How do we deal with our self-centeredness when it comes to,
0: I want heaven, without the journey there? I, I, I think you just hit it on the head. We, see, we, at first, we recognize that the issue here is our self-centeredness and that um, in many ways, the cross, the cross shows us so much, and it shows us what happens when people allow themselves to be driven by self-centeredness. They put the Son of God on a cross and put him to death, you know, and so he's exposing this path, and he's calling us to a different one, and yeah, you're right, it's not just migraines or these various things that happen to all of us. It's anything that comes into your life as a result of you following Jesus, and now that may, mean, that may be very personal. Here's one of the hard things with this is we don't just wanna make everything that happens in my life a taking up of my cross, but like every time you experience hard because of your commitment to Jesus. And that means in your interpersonal relations with one another, whenever you you have a hard time because you're being selfless, that's what we're talking about. Whenever you're like saying, I'm not gonna fulfill my desires, I'm not gonna focus on what I want, I'm gonna serve you, the people around me, or them, or him, or her, or whatever, like that is, I think, taking up the cross. Or whenever, because you're committed to the way of Jesus, the world around you looks down upon you or, you know, closes off a pathway to you or, or mocks you or whatever. That too, I think is, is part of what he means by take up the cross. Um, so I can't remember exactly the question that you asked, but I think I remember enough of it uh, to say, you know, part of what, um, we want you to hear in this text is not just Jesus like yelling really intensely, Whenever it gets to the part where he says, if you want to come after me, then you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. I've always in in the past heard this as like this really intense moment where the preacher's up there and he's going off and I'm feeling really bad and it's a really emotional moment and I'm like, yes, I'm in. I don't really think that's what's going on here. I think Jesus is being calm and calculating. I think Jesus is saying, hey guys, listen, here's how it works if you want this to happen for you, if you want your soul, your very self saved, then you're gonna have to give it up completely and let me take total charge. And that I think is some of what this means for us is letting Jesus take total charge of our lives down to the ways we treat each other the ways we spend our time all the all these different things. And and one of the other reasons why we wanted to do this one in dialogue is this idea of letting Jesus take control of your life or taking up your cross and following me. It's sort of it, it's like it it inspires well. You know, like you could have a really moving, you know, one guy getting up and preaching a sermon and really just inspiring us all to do this and there's a time for that. But as I've gotten older and my life has been, you know, just more routine and and normal and some of these different things, it's become, I, I read this text now and I think, yeah, that like made a lot of sense when I was 17 to just give it all up for Jesus. But we wanted to have a conversation to say, no, like in the context of normal daily adult life, taking up your cross and following Jesus is still a thing, right? It's still something that does determine our steps all along the way.
1: I just noticed something in verse 38, if you see that. He said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this culture, adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory. So uh, I think it's interesting, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of who Jesus Christ is. And I think the temptation for all of us when suffering comes is to get out of it as quickly as possible instead of understanding that the same suffering Messiah who we've identified as our Lord, will lead us safely to the other side. And without this, we can't go through it. That's why one of my favorite quotes of C.S. Lewis, because I don't remember all the brainy ones. I remember the simple ones. But he said, this will all make sense one day, and the most common expression in heaven will be, oh, 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 no kidding. Because Jesus said, you have to trust me. Peter said, you're the Messiah. They came to this healing man. Peter said, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, now let me reveal who I am as Messiah. And that's part and parcel of what we worship. And I appreciate Michael so much for coming and sharing with us. Would you help me express appreciation to him and his teaching? So we answer the so what question now. So we learn this. Maybe that miracle wasn't just a false start. Maybe he didn't have to do it twice because he messed up. Maybe he's just who he said he was. And he did it to teach us something. And in teaching us something, what do we learn? What we learn is to follow Jesus does require everything, which means we are going to have to say no to self first. And then, that's a lot easier than the next thing I'm going to ask you to do. You have to say no to the world. We have to silence the voices that are questioning whether Jesus is good and wise. And it's going to cost us something to do so. It won't go well. It won't go well because we've been bad and God's getting even. It won't go well because people don't want to take a knee before Christ. They, they don't think they need a Messiah, like Michael said earlier so well. We're trying to fashion Jesus to fit what we need him to be instead of receiving him as he is. And Peter would struggle with this. But listen to the words. Let's not be ashamed of Jesus. He's exactly who you believe him to be. Now let him reveal himself to you each and every day, trusting him more, even in suffering, to see who he is. That's the Jesus we're about to worship in music That's the Jesus we're about to worship when we walk out of this building into the parking lot. Let's stand together and worship that Jesus.
0: Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.